Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. I had fully intended to offer to sing a song with slash for you, but um, I haven't been sleeping so good and my voice is, is uh, not doing too well as a result of that. So I, I'm going to forego the, the idea of singing and try to save my voice and make it through the lesson tonight. That being said, could I ask for your input on this? Um, I, I can't speak as loud as I normally would without a, a decent amount of pain. So if you could just let me know if the, if the volume is still okay. Um, maybe I can move the, the I, this isn't really a microphone, but the receiver, I can adjust it if, it's, if, if I'm not loud enough. And I'm, trying, I'm not trying to mumble tonight. I'll try to be as clear as I can be. All right, Matthew chapter 10. And before we get into the outline for that chapter, let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' wonderful name. And as the song that was playing in the background was just saying, Lord, one day in the sweet by and by, uh, Lord, we look forward to that day when you call us home and we get to see you face to face. And until that time, help us to be diligent as we study, Lord. Help us to study, to show ourselves approved unto you. So, Lord, guide us as we go now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 10. Uh, I am going to call this chapter Apostolic Privilege. Apostolic Privilege. And I'm calling it that because the whole chapter uh, is, is directed at the apostles, the twelve specifically that Jesus chose and sends out. He's going to give them instructions and warnings for the ministry. Uh, before I give the outline, you know what, I'm going to take a chance here. I am seeing nothing in the chat section, which is very curious. Everybody stay put. This will only take a second. I want to try this. I'm going to close this app and reopen it. I think I should be able to continue the live stream. So just Hang on just a second. Wow. Okay. I'm back. Volume perfect. Volume is good. There were lots of messages. I'm glad I did that. Wow. Okay. If I see the chat section close down on me again, I might just restart it like this in the future. Okay. Matthew 10. Apostolic privilege. It is a privilege to be chosen by Jesus Christ to go into the full-time ministry. So I'm calling it apostolic privilege. I believe there are six parts to the chapter. That's how I'm going to divide it. Part number one, powers. The powers that go along with the apostolic ministry. So I would just put powers, verse 1. And it, it, they're mentioned again in verse 8. And then part two, people the people of the apostolic ministry. Verses 2, 3, and 4, we're dealing with the apostles themselves, which men were chosen. And then verses 5 and 6, uh, or 5, 6, and 7, we're dealing with the target audience for the apostles. All right, so powers, people, part 3, preaching. Verse 7, we are told what their message was to be focused on. And then part four, provision. Provision, verses 9 to 13, the provision. Jesus will talk about 
carrying gold, silver, and where are they going to find food as they travel around and preach? And then part five, persecution. Persecution. Now listen to this, verses 14 to 39. Quite a big chunk of the chapter is dedicated to the persecution. And there are admonitions to endure all of that. We'll talk about that as we get to it. And then finally, part six, prize. Prize. Uh, we would also say rewards, but I needed a word that started with P, so prize. Verses 40 to 42. So we have apostolic privilege, the powers, the people, the preaching, provision, persecution, and prize. All right, Matthew 10, verse 1. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. So in verse 1, we read about the special powers that went along with the apostolic ministry. These powers, the ability to do these miracles, they can still happen today. However, they are no longer a part of the gospel ministry. They're no longer a requirement for the gospel ministry. One quick way that you know that is when you read the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and the book of Titus. Paul mentions nothing about these miracles as being necessities for the ministry. As a matter of fact, in none of Paul's epistles does he mention it as a necessity. Now, miracles can still happen, but we should not expect that every time somebody's preaching, there are going to be miracles accompanying that. Now, physical uh, outward manifestations, those kind of things. I understand that the work of salvation is a miracle in and of itself, a great miracle. Uh, if I can just remind you, this is something we talk about in discipleship, so I won't spend long on this point. But when Christ came, He's fulfilling prophecy by performing certain miracles. However, the miraculous works that He's doing, it is also confirming the Word that He's preaching. This is how God operates. Since since he began revealing things to mankind, when God revealed things to Moses, Moses said, if I just show up and tell the people God said, they're not going to believe me. And the Lord backed him up on that, said, yeah, you're right. Exodus 4, God gave him three signs, right? Throw the rod down and becomes a serpent, take it back up. Hand in, leprosy, put it back in, it's healed. Turn the water to blood. So he says, these three signs will convince them that you are speaking on my behalf. So the miracle by itself, it just says something supernatural is happening. You need to mix the right miracle with the right message, and then you, uh, then you can be certain that you're hearing from God. Same thing in Christ's ministry. He was fulfilling prophecies, and he's given his apostles the power to do this so that the, the audience, the people they're ministering to, can see a connection between Christ and these men. But that's not the only way, right? That's not the only thing they relied on for that connection. They also had to be preaching the right message. And we're going to talk more about that in, in a few verses. Can I ask you to take your Bible to Luke chapter 6? Just quickly flip over to Luke 6. We're going to be in Luke 6 for uh, a few minutes because we're going to compare the list of the apostles that we have uh, coming up in, in the next couple of verses. Luke 6. And I want to show you this first off. Like, let's get verse 12 and 13. 12 and 13. 
It says in verse 12, And it came to pass in those days that he, Jesus, went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Now, Jesus didn't have all-night prayer meetings every night of his life. But on this occasion, he did. Now, we know that there's, a, there's another time, right? Gethsemane, that he spends um, a, a good amount of time, probably three hours, if we understand the passage correctly. And he prayed the night before he, he would go to the cross. So when you have something real big that you're facing the next day or big decisions to make, you know, down the road, it's not unusual to spend an extra amount of time in prayer, even all night, if that's what it takes. What was the big decision that Jesus had to make? Verse 13, And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. So please understand the difference between a disciple and an apostle. All apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. Right? A disciple is somebody who is a follower of Christ. Any, any follower that is performing any function as far as ministry goes falls into that, let's call it a general category. But then there can be a specific calling where Jesus says, I'm going to send you out to do X, Y, Z. So the word apostle comes from the Greek word apostolon, and that word means sent out. Uh, as church history progressed, Latin became one of the chief languages uh, within the church, and the Latin word for sent out is missio, which, which is where we get the word missionary. So it's pretty much the same, same thing. So I just want you to see that Jesus had a lot of disciples and he chose 12. I believe that's what he was praying about. God, which 12 should I choose? When you read Acts 1, you know that there were others, other faithful disciples, even some standing there that day that were not chosen, but stayed faithful anyway. And by the time you get to Acts 1, they had some replacements, right, ready to take Judas's spot. All right, so hold Luke 6. Don't, don't drop that. Come back to Matthew 10. And now let's get the names, and we'll come back to Luke and compare them. Matthew 10, verse 2. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter. Now, Peter, is, that was a new name that Jesus gave him as the ministry progressed. He knew him as Simon for the first about year or year and a half. In Matthew 16, we'll cover that in more detail. And Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. So the first four that are mentioned, they're all brothers, or let's say they're two pairs of brothers. Verse 3, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, whom we met last week in chapter 9, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lubius, whose surname was Thaddeus. So Lubius Thaddeus. Uh, we, we don't that's a name we don't hear often, right? When we read church history books or you read you know, the New Testament, you don't come across that name very often. Number, or verse 4, sorry. Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. I, I find it, can I say amusing? <laughs> when, when these gospel writers sat down, Matthew and Luke and these men, and they made the list, they always put Judas at the end. <laughs> they, they, they sink him all the way to the bottom. Uh, look at Luke 6. Now, I'm going to read the list here again, and I'll point out 
how it's the same men, but there are different names used for a couple of the men. So Luke 6 verse 14, Simon, whom he also named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas. So far so good. Everything lines up. Even the next one, James the son of Alphaeus, were good. And Simon called Zelotes. Uh, there were a group in the first century. Uh, there was a group in Israel called the Zealots. And it was a, a radical political group that was busy trying to overthrow the government, things like that. It appears that Simon, who in Matthew was called Simon the Canaanite, he was evidently, he, he had some connections to that zealot group. At least it seems to indicate that. Um, I think that would be a fair connection to make based on this information. Uh, but Simon called Zelotes, and verse 16, and Judas, the brother of James. Now, Judas, the brother of James, James, this is going to be James, the son of Alphaeus. And, and Judas, the brother of James, so this is, this, this man's full name was Judas Lebius Thaddeus. So back in Matthew, when we read Lebius Thaddeus, he had another name on top of it, and that is Judas. Now, it's, it's a very high likelihood that it is this Jude, or Jude is the short version for this, this Judas, the brother of James, Lubius Thaddeus, or Lebius Thaddeus. This is probably the man who wrote the book of Jude. I, we can't be completely certain of that because um, if you come now to... Mark, get, to, get Mark chapter 3, or Mark chapter 6, rather, verse 3. Look at Mark 6, verse 3. Mark 6, verse 3. When you read the book of Jude, chapter 1 and verse 1, he, it starts off by him saying, Jude, servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. Well, the, the James that was well known by the time the book of Jude was written was James, the Lord's brother, who had taken over as pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And it would make sense that Jude would mention an, another name that is well known so that people know who to, who to associate him with. So, some say that the book of Jude was written by a brother of Jesus, right? James, the brother, the, as far as the flesh is concerned, physical brother of Jesus, and, and Judas, or Jude, was another brother of Jesus. Look at Mark 3, verse... Mark, I keep saying that. Mark 6, verse 3. Forgive me. Mark 3 has a list of the apostles in it, so I'm getting confused. Mark 6, 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? So Judah, Jude, Judas. It's all it's different spellings for the same name. So within Jesus's. Uh, earthly family, he has two brothers named Jude and James. But then in the list of the apostles, we also have two completely different men named Jude and James, and those two men are brothers. So there's a very good chance that when Jude writes his epistle and says, servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, he, he might be referring to James, son of Alphaeus. That, that's a possibility. We just can't rule that out. All right, come back to Matthew 10. So I'm just giving you a little bit of background. So if you ever come across these names, you know how they connect. 
and it's not unusual at all for a man to have two or three right, uh, two or three names. I, I have uh, four names actually. My given names: Michael, James, Flick. Uh, however, in the Catholic Church, when you get uh, confirmed, you get to choose a fourth name. So I chose a fourth name for myself, and uh, my fourth name is Aloysius. Aloysius. I don't, I don't even know how to spell it. <laughs> but he is, in the Catholic Church, the patron saint, patron saint of the youth. So since I was a youth at the time, I chose that name. But it's not unusual to have a number of names. All right, uh, Matthew 10 and verse 4. Let me point this out. Simon the Canaanite. The Canaanite. The Canaanites come from Ham. Right? Remember the three sons of Noah? Shem, Ham, Japheth. So the Japhethites, now this we know from Genesis 10. If you, if you look at where the Japhethites settled, and then you look at what people groups came from that, that that's your Caucasians, your white folk. Shem, Shemites, they went to the east. Those are your, uh, forgive me, not, I'm just using colors. Those are the yellow folk, right? Uh, those are the nice tan brown, the evenly tanned. If we want to use shades of brown, I'm a very light, light shade of brown. And then you have Ham. Those Hamites, they went down into Africa. The word Ham means black or burnt. But the, the people of Ham, they settled in Africa. So the Canaanites, they came from Ham. There's a very good chance that this Simon... It's difficult, right? We, we can't say for certain that he was a full-blown black man the way we know black people in, in Africa today because he is in the northern part of Africa. He's up in the land of Israel, right? At the least, he's from nor the northern part, or his family is. And uh, so I don't know about the shade of his skin, but I do know about his family background. It links back to Ham. Well, the reason I bring this up is because for quite some time, people, people tried to exclude a certain, certain other people groups from serving the Lord or from having any high position and saying, but the people Jesus chose were of this category. Well, first off, they were all Shemites, Jews, and then you have one Hamite. There, there were no Japhethites. I'll let you do whatever you want to with that, but Simon is a Canaanite. Very interesting. Simon the Canaanite, Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him now. Matthew 10, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This verse, it must be, it, it has to be understood with a dispensational slant. Because by the time you get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has risen from the dead, and He says, Go, into, go and teach all nations. Right? That include, that's Gentiles. Go into all the world. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Beginning in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. Something changed. So you've heard me say it, and I'll continue to say it, because it's very important to studying the Bible. God works with different people at different times, in different ways. While Jesus was on the earth for three and a half years, 
He was focused on ministering to the nation of Israel. He came to fulfill their, the prophecies about the Messiah and to offer them the kingdom. Yes, the Gentiles were part of the plan, but they were the next step in the plan. They were not the targeted audience during Christ's earthly ministry. That must be recognized. And that explains so much of what Jesus said and did because his audience is, is a Jewish audience, expecting certain things that should be happening at that particular time. Uh, in verse number 7, uh, forgive me, I'm not going to spend long on that because, again, in discipleship, we cover that point in, in very great detail. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, verse 7, and as you go, preach and say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? That's the focus, that's the primary message of their, of their gospel, of their ministry. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, of course, they're going to talk about the Messiah. They're going to offer the proof, right? They're going to say, look at what Jesus is doing. Look at his life. You can see how it is fulfilling Scripture, right? Both his, his past, where he was born, where he grew up, all that fits, and the miracle he's, uh, miracles that he's doing. So they would have spoken about Christ for sure. But the, the, the primary reason for explaining all that is to say the kingdom. He's come to offer us the kingdom. Now, you and I, we, we do talk about the kingdom when we preach. It's not as if the kingdom is an off-limits topic for us. However, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. We, we have a different message. Now, we are still trying to prepare people so that they can enter into God's kingdom. That is still a, true, a, a, a truth that we can proclaim. But you have to recognize that the disciples at this juncture could not be preaching the death, burial, and resurrection for the obvious reason that it hadn't happened yet. So notice their message. It's the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Our gospel is called the gospel of the grace of God. Obviously, we have further revelation that we can talk about. Verse 8, Jesus tells them, Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Now, I've already spoken about how the miracles show a connection to Christ. They confirm the message. I find it very interesting that in verse 7, this, this is what you preach. In verse 8, this is how you confirm it. Do you see how, how it's ordered? What comes first? The message. That's more important. And then the miracles, the signs, confirm the Word. You can just mark there, uh, or put a mark in your Bible. Mark 16, verse 20. They, they preached the Word and had signs following, and it confirmed the Word. Uh, let me just point this out, that when Moses got started in the ministry, right, the miracles he did were incredible. They were unique, unprecedented, right? The plagues in Egypt, no one had ever seen anything like that. And, and those miracles, God allowed Moses or used Moses as a vessel to bring those miracles to pass. Raising his rod, parting a Red Sea, God did great things through the ministry of Moses. 
those miracles did not continue down through Israel's history. Now, I'm not saying that miracles didn't happen. They did. Joshua saw miracles in his life. The prophets had miracles happen. You read about them in the Old Testament. But you never read of any other prophet, any other priest, having a ministry that shared the same unique, the same miracles that Moses had. Now, I think that correlates very nicely to how it works in the New Testament. Jesus shows up. He's doing amazing things, very unique, more, more so than even Moses. And then He delegates these men to go and do the same thing. There's that connection. So this entire movement is now busy with this. They're confirming the Word with these signs. But then after the truth is confirmed, it's written down, the proof is there, you don't, it's not that these miracles can't ever happen on occasion, but there's no necessity to constantly repeat what has already been done. All right, so at the end of verse 8, freely ye have received, freely give. Don't use the ministry to make, uh, to make a bunch of money. Don't abuse this gift and think that now that I can do these amazing things, let me charge people for it. Now, you're going to see in just a moment, this is different from I'm feeding you spiritually, so you should take care of me physically. That Jesus is going to affirm that truth in just a couple verses. But the idea of going around and telling people, if you offer enough money, then you will release the blessings of God. I don't know how they say it. I don't go to those meetings, but you guys, I'm sure you've heard people go down that path, right? The idea of selling tickets so that people can come to a healing meeting. I, I'm sorry, but verse 8 is just so clearly against that. Uh, verse 9, Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses. Now, might sound a little strange for a group of men to be carrying purses. I would rather call it a man bag, but what you might be familiar with this picture. Uh, back in biblical times, these men, they would have something, you know, like a robe on, and then they would have a girdle or a belt around the waistline. And then they would have a leather sack hanging from that belt or that girdle. And that was their purse. It was their man bag. All right. Now the next, now when he says provide neither gold, silver, nor brass in your purses, you don't need to be taking your life savings everywhere you go. Right. You, you don't worry about having a bunch of money to get you by. And he'll explain why just now. Verse ten. Nor scrip for your journey. Now don't be careful. Don't put a T on the end of scrip. If you if you say script. Then you're talking about a piece of paper, uh, something that's been written. <clears throat> but th this word, S-C-R-I-P, script, is like a smaller version of the man bag. It's a small, almost like a coin purse. I think that would be the best way to, to um, equate it to something we know today. But also you could think of it as a little wallet, something even smaller than that bag hanging off of the guy's belt. Uh, the Bible says in 1 Samuel 17, verse 40, which, by the way, that's the attendance code for tonight. 1 Samuel 17, verse 40. When David went to the brook and got five stones, and, and he was going to use 
them. He only had to use one, but he, he collected five. And the Bible says he put them in his scrip. So that's a little bag. You know what? Maybe you might see kids carrying around a bag of marbles. Right? That, that would be the size of a scrip. Right, so verse 10, nor script for your journey, neither two coats. Well, he says neither two coats, so I would assume you could take one. Neither shoes. Because he said two coats, I'm going to think that you don't have to take an extra pair of shoes. Nor, nor yet staves, plural. You see how it's in the plural. So I believe what he's getting across is, guys, you need to travel light. You are going to be moving around quite a bit. You don't need to be cumbered. You don't need to be burdened with a bunch of luggage. And if you're carrying money, that attracts attention, right, of all sorts, people trying to sell you stuff and thieves. So Jesus is trying to uh, ease their burden so that they can focus on what he's sending them out to do. They have a very limited time to get this done. They don't have time for any other nonsense. They don't need to be entangled with the affairs of this life would be a good way to think of this. At the end of verse 10, he says, for the workman is worthy of his meat. Imagine if Jesus said this to you today, I'm sending you out, don't take any money. Don't even take a bag big enough to carry the money. Just go with the clothes on your back. You don't need an extra staff. You don't need an extra pair of shoes. You don't need a suitcase. You don't need a duffel, nothing. Just, just go, how am I gonna eat? Where am I gonna sleep? He says, don't worry. As you go out, God will make sure that there is a place and that there are uh, enough food and drink. God will provide that. And if you're doing the job that you're supposed to do for God, then you are worthy of that, of that physical stuff. God will take care of that. Now, this works very nicely. This is what Paul quoted in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. The laborer is worthy of his reward, of his hire. So if, if the pastor is working, if the preacher is doing his job, right? 1 Timothy 5, it says he's worthy of double honor if he labors in the word and doctrine. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 11, Paul says, If we sow into you spiritual things, and we should reap your carnal things. And, and Jesus supports that, that idea. All right, verse 11, And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy. <clears throat> All right, the word worthy we may not use that word the same way that we find it in the, in the Bible here. Not too far off, but it's changed just a little bit. We might say, who is ready or suitable? Uh, maybe we would say, who is up to the task, right? Now, even if you look at the Greek word that uh, gives us worthy, it, those are all possible translations. So uh, the, the right idea is still getting across here. Now, the reason I think worthy is the best word to use because it covers more, if you just said up to the task or suitable, that might get the job done as well, but, but worthy, it makes me think of the man's character, right? It makes me think of, is he a virtuous man? And that's what they're supposed to be checking for. He says, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till you go then. So, when the apostles go into a town, they were sent out two by two. So two men walk into a town. They start asking around, hey, are there, any, are there any men in this town that love God, that are trying to live right, and uh, that have space and have sufficient means so that they could take care of us? So ready, suitable, up to the task, worthy to have men of God 
stay with them for two days, two weeks, whatever it is, two months. We need them not only to have a sufficient space, sufficient supplies, but a sufficient testimony. You don't want to go in that house and find out, man, they're doing a bunch of, they might have a lot of food and plenty of beds and a comfortable place to sleep, but yo, these guys are, they're doing some awful things. You can't have the ministry connected to that. So you have to do a little inquiring. Verse 12, and when you come into an house, salute it. So somebody in town might say, yeah, go, go ask so-and-so. Well, the guy that gave you that information in town, he may not know exactly what's going on in that house. So you check a little further. You get to the house, you salute it. Now, the word salute, you know, we think like the army type thing, you give it a salute. Paul says salute the saints. So we, which in, in the days, these are the days AC, right? After Corona, we, we might have to salute the saints and no longer shake their hand. But what, what he's getting at is offer them a proper greeting, a proper and polite greeting. And one that is very popular amongst the Jews is peace be unto you, right? Shalom, peace be unto you. So when you go there, be pleasant, be polite. Peace be unto you. Verse 13, and if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it, right? So you go in and you say, peace be unto you. You get to know them a little bit. And sure enough, man, this is solid family. They have, you know, you're not going to be putting them in a, in, a, in, in a bad way. If you stay there, you know, you're not going to eat up all their resources. Say, ah, folks, I'd, I'd really love to get to know you better. Stay here while we preach. This is a real help and a blessing. And that your peace comes upon this place. You are blessing them by staying there, right? Because they get to take part in the ministry now. They're doing their part. So let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. So that shalom, that peace be unto you that you offered them when you walked in the door. You're being polite and friendly because you don't know. You get to know them a little bit. Find out these people aren't walking with God. They're not trying. They have no intentions of, of living a righteous life. So as you leave, you wouldn't... You, would, you don't have to be rude, but you do need to be honest. You say, folks, appreciate you letting me have a few minutes to get to know you. We're going to head on and see if we can find another place to stay. You know what they're going to ask? What's wrong? Did we, did we do something? So we say, you know what? Folks, uh, how about you come out tomorrow? We're going to have a preaching service. I think it might benefit you quite a bit. You would not wish that house Godspeed. Right? That's 2 John 1, verse 8, 9, and 10. You, you wouldn't want to suggest to them in any way that you are in fellowship with them, that you can continue a friendship, or that you agree with what's going on. So you don't have to be mean and nasty, but you, you don't want to walk out of the house going, all right, God bless you folks. God bless what? If you say that, it's indicating that what they're doing is okay and worthy of God's blessing. So... It's the, it's the same idea of taking the peace back. So I, I said peace be unto you, but you know what? I, I don't know if God's peace can reside in this house. So you would have to explain that a little bit before you go. That would be one way to minister to that house. Verse 14, And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, so you see there was a bit of a conversation after you leave that house, shake off the dust of your feet. I've had a lot of guys ask me, you know, after a sermon, 
they, they, they beat themselves up real bad. Man, I wish I could have done that better. I, I didn't say anything the way I wanted to say. I, I know how that feels. I feel that way often. God has helped me greatly, especially even recently. God continues to help me not to um, worry about the reactions that I got or lack thereof. You know what you do when your preaching gets rejected? If Listen, if you did the best you could to get the message across, learn from whatever mistakes you made, do better the next time. That's all you can do. But if the people didn't receive it, shake it off. Shake it off. Jesus says, shake off the dust of your feet. Now this was something, forgive me, I'm going to give you an illustration here. These men wore sandals, so they would literally take their shoes off and then clap their shoes as they left that house or that city. And that would show the people. It was like a very visible uh, witness to them. Your, the dust of your town is not on us, right? It's on you. The responsibility's on you. We are free from anyone blaming us for what you're doing wrong. We tried to tell you. Paul, in the book of Acts chapter 18, he, he does it a little bit differently. Uh, let me just check it. I believe he shakes the, uh, his garment, the lap of his garment. But it, it gets the same idea across. Um, it says, Acts 18, 6, And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. So same idea. All right, verse, back in Matthew 10, verse 15. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So this tells me that at the judgment, it's much more intricate than just dividing into two groups. One group goes to heaven, the other group goes to hell. It's much more intricate than that. Some people have a more tolerant or get more tolerance from God. And it all depends on how much light they had access to. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah did not have the same evidence presented to them as these people in the, in the cities of Israel during this time. They were seeing the Son of God walk around in the flesh and His apostles doing these miracles, explaining how the prophecies were being fulfilled. So they really had no excuse now, Sodom and Gomorrah, they had the light of their conscience. They are still sinners. They were wicked, and they deserved to be punished. But because they had a different amount of light offered to them, God is going to factor that in on the day of judgment. All right, verse 16. Verse 16. The Bible says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, the wolves, you might remember, are false prophets. That's chapter 7. Verse 15, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Jesus says, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. All right, let me talk about the wise as serpents. You need to patiently wait for the right opportunity. That's what a serpent does. It will hide itself away and patiently wait and then when that opportunity to come out and strike presents itself, then it will go to work. So you can learn from the serpent's wisdom about being patient and timing and so forth. Harmless as doves. 
Unlike the serpent, when we jump out to strike, we're not trying to kill. We jump out trying to minister. We, we see an opportunity to give someone the gospel, to explain the kingdom to them, and then we rush off to do it. So we need to take the best parts of both, wise as serpents, harmless as doves. We mean no harm with what we're doing. Not everybody's going to understand it like that. They might think that you're being mean when you explain that they're sinners and on their way to hell and that they need to be saved. That being said, you still you need to tell them the truth. Tell them the truth in, in love. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Let me bring this down into verse 17 as well. But beware of men. The word beware, be aware. Pay attention to this. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues. It says, ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake. I think this factors into the wise as serpents statement. If the world around you is busy persecuting you, then don't purposely put yourself in harm's way. A, a serpent wouldn't do that. A serpent tucks itself away and hides itself until the right moment, then it comes out. And we find Jesus doing this in His ministry. There were times that the people came to attack and wanted to, uh, wanted to let's say, arrest Him or beat Him or kill Him even. And He had to slip. The Bible says that He slipped away. He went right through the crowd. Forgive me for using the analogy, but much like a serpent would just go and zigzag right through it, wise as a serpent. He realizes, I have a greater ministry to achieve. I can't stand here trying to defend myself to this crowd and convince them of, of what they've already rejected. They had their opportunity. Time to go. And you read it in the book of Acts as well, that, that uh, Paul would do that on occasion. So the idea of being prudent, right? The prudent man seeth the evil and hideth himself. That's being wise as a serpent. When it comes to doves, I, I wish I had time to focus in just on doves, but that's I'll let you guys carry on studying that. Fascinating study. When you look at all the attributes of a dove, remember, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. But doves really don't have much in the way of defense. They have a very soft beak and soft claws, which makes them for a very gentle bird. Uh, but not very good against predators. They, they really can't defend themselves very well. The one thing that they have going for them is that they can fly away very quickly. Uh, they're, they're, they're very skittish. It doesn't take much. <laughs> Off they go. Well, that tells me something. Jesus is instructing the disciples when you see trouble lurking, you don't have to sit there and take it. Now, if there's no way out of the situation, right, and they've arrested you, and, and we find this in the book of Acts, and maybe being persecuted, then you do need to endure it. You don't want to lie just to get out of it. But you don't want to purposely put yourself in harm's way either. Beware, verse 17, Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils. They did, the book of Acts. And they will scourge you in their synagogues. They did. Happened throughout the book of Acts. Verse 18, You should be brought before governors sorry, and kings for my sake. This happened. Peter... He was brought before the, let's call them the big shots of Israel, and Paul especially. He, he was presented before the governor Felix, Acts 24, and then before King Agrippa in Acts 26. You shall be brought before... Now, I know Paul's not in this group, but you understand how all of this 
was fulfilled. Ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Now, interestingly enough, if you pair this with verse 5, he said, Go not in the way of the Gentiles. And then Jesus says, This testimony is even going to reach the Gentiles. So this is a, a bit of a hint, a nod at where this is going to eventually end up. Uh, verse 19, And when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. If you want to quickly look over at Acts chapter 4, I'll give you the perfect illustration of this. This is actually a fulfillment of, of that. Acts 4 verse 8, Peter has been arrested. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. So you see the governors, the kings, and all of that. If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you, uh, unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye have crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Peter had no time to prepare that sermon. The Holy Spirit, it says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, says. So right then, he was able to give the perfect answer to this accusation. This, back in Matthew 10, verse 19, this is not, this is not a verse about sermon preparation. I have actually heard preachers use verse 19 and 20. We can read verse 20. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. I have heard people say that preparation is wrong because that is the work of man and you are putting your words down on paper, what you think you should say. You need to just read your Bible and pray and then whatever God, get up and just preach. Whatever God tells you to say, you say it. And there are actually, in America, there are parts of America where if you have, if you have notes while you preach, they won't listen because they think, you wrote that. How can that be of God? That, that is, this is not a lesson on sermon preparation. This is, you're being persecuted. Uh, you don't need to stay up all night in prison, you know, worrying about what am I going to say the next day. You don't even know what they're, you might have a general idea what they're going to ask, but you need to just wait and let the Spirit of God lead you in that moment. Wherein is a good lesson. When you're going through something very difficult, you can trust God to give you the wisdom you need in that difficult moment. That, that's a great lesson to take from this. Verse 21, And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child. My goodness. And the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. Wow. Did you know that's happened? For the la in the last 2,000 years, that has happened over and over again. Verse 22, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Boy, you know, the church has become so commercialized. It's hard to think of verse 22 fitting into a lot of the massive mega ministries that you see all over. Ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end 
shall be saved. Now these two verses, I need you to look at Mark chapter 13, please. Mark chapter 13. we, We must compare Scripture with Scripture. Mark 13, verse 12. Now, Mark 13. This is Jesus giving what we call the Olivet Discourse. His disciples have asked Him, what are the signs of your coming and of the end of the world? And then Jesus is going to describe earthquakes in diverse places, nation rising against nation, pestilences, persecution, and, and he goes on talking about what will happen in the end days. Now, forgive me, but if you can just let your eyes scan quickly. Verse 9, 10, 11. Do you see that we, we just read the same things in Matthew 10? But Jesus is describing what will be happening in the end times, what we would usually refer to as the tribulation time. Verse 12, Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father, the son, the children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. And you should be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end the same shall be saved. Do you see how it's the exact same verse? I'm reading this in Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse, about two weeks before Jesus died. He's talking about His second coming. Right? He's talking about the the end days. You just look at verse 14. The abomination of des- desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. It's going to stand and then you need to flee into the mountains, right? Isn't that what it says there at the end of verse 14? Let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. Keep that in mind. So those are end time prophecies. Jesus is instructing His apostles with those same ideas saying, guys, this persecution is going to happen to you. Why would he say that? There was the possibility that as the apostles go out, that the nation of Israel, by and large, right, the leaders of Israel might have repented, could have received Christ as the Messiah. Jesus still would have died. He would have resurrected. And then the world would have entered into that tribulation period, what we know as Daniel's 70th week. And after the seven years, because there had to have been seven because of Daniel chapter 9. It was prophesied that there would be. Jesus would have come back that second advent, and everything you read in Matthew 24, Mark 13, it all would have come to pass exactly as He said. But this shows us the context of what we're reading in Matthew 10. We're reading about something that could have happened in those early days if the Jews would have received Jesus as the Messiah. There wouldn't have been a church age. The body of Christ, that mystery, would never have needed to be revealed. So the body of Christ, right, it departs from the earth in the rapture. So that wouldn't have been revealed. You've seen me draw the arrows on the board, right? The arrow going up is the rapture, and then seven years, an arrow coming down. The arrow going up, it wouldn't be there. Jesus doesn't talk about the rapture. It wasn't in view at this point. The instruction was, guys, when you get persecuted, don't give up the faith. Because if you do, if you don't endure unto the end, you're not going to be saved. Why? They had not, they're not baptized into the body of Christ. The salvation that these disciples 
would have had at this point. It's not the same deal that we have. I, forgive me for using that word, but this uh, the law of the Spirit, this operating system that we've been talking about on Sunday nights and on uh, you know, in Colossians and Galatians, they didn't have access to that. So bear in mind that they're operating under a slightly different system. Verse 23, But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. Now, you Remember what we just read in Mark 13. You'll also find it in Matthew 24, verse 15. When you see this, flee out of Judea, head to the mountains. When they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. That's, that's wise as a serpent. Run, flee. That's what a dove does to protect, go. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Now, this verse has caused quite a bit of headaches for, for theologians down through the years because critics of the Bible will point to this as a failed prophecy. The apostles of Jesus did go all over Israel. They went through all the cities of Israel. And the Son of Man did not come back. Right? So you read the book of Acts, they went everywhere. And the Son of Man didn't come the second time. Does that mean that Jesus has a failed prophecy? Not if you consider the context. Let, let me show you a verse. Get, get Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. And as I've mentioned, he's talking about the end times and what's going to happen, what they can expect. Matthew 24, get verse uh, 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree, when his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So you know that a certain season is coming upon you when you see a, the tree starting to bloom. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things. So these prophecies that Jesus has been giving throughout the chapter, when all of them start blooming, he says, know that it is near even at the doors. When you see the things I've mentioned, come to fruition, then you know we are in the end times, it's the end of the world, and Jesus is about to come back. Verse 34, watch it. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And when Jesus says this generation, he's not pointing to the, to the generation alive standing in front of him. He's saying this generation, the one that sees the fruition of these prophecies, that the generation that sees this will not pass. We might be that generation, right? God knows with what's going on. And guys, forgive me, I, I, I don't want to wax political, but I don't understand how or why the governments are doing what they're doing. I, this isn't a, a lesson on politics, so I'm going to stay out of that. But it, it's just getting weird, which to me, I think could definitely usher, it, usher us into these end-time prophetical situations. Now, back to Matthew 10, that generation that sees these things come to pass, when that abomination of desolation stands in the holy place and the Jews have to start fleeing, they won't have time to tour Israel and go from city to city to city to city. There won't be enough time. They'll run, they'll hide, and before they can 
run to all the cities, Jesus will have come back. So you have to think of that as a prophetical situation. And the context demands that we understand it prophetically. That's why I took the time to show you Mark 13, Matthew 24. All right, verse 24. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. So we shouldn't expect special treatment. If it happened to Jesus, if they hated him, persecuted him, then surely we should expect the same if we're properly following his footsteps. Uh, verse 25, when it says, it is enough, we would say it is fitting or it's sufficient, right? It's fitting that we get the same treatment. He says in verse 25, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, which is, um, it means the Lord of the flies, but it's another name for Satan. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Well, they'll call you children of hell or children of the devil. Verse 26, fear them not therefore, which by the way, name calling is a form of persecution. They, if they call you a certain thing, it's, it's maybe the mildest form of persecution, but it is persecution. Verse 26, fear them not therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. It is very hurtful when people start saying things like you're a child of the devil, you're full of the devil. Right now on YouTube, you know, I got some videos that I've posted recently in the Bible Q&A vlog, and people write in in the comments, you know, you're delusional, you're an idiot, don't listen to this man, he's deceiving people, people are going to hell because of you. I really have to apply this because I don't have time to try to convince them all. I don't. Some of their arguments are ridiculous. So the Bible says, answer not a fool according to his folly. And I just leave it there. But I know one day, right, all the hidden things are going to come out. So if somebody wants to accuse me of wickedness and lying, <clears throat> okay, I'll, I'll try to present the truth. But I know on the day of judgment, God will straighten it all out. And these hidden things, these whatever twisted reasons they have for saying these things, all of that stuff will be revealed. Verse 27, What I tell you in darkness, <clears throat> that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. All right, Jesus, now this literally happened with him. Uh, he would sit down with his disciples and teach them in a house, even into the wee hours of the night. And then those things that they heard in darkness, he says, you go out and tell everybody the next day publicly. Get on top of the houses and shout it out. Uh, you and I, the way we would apply this today is we go into our prayer closet and we hear from the Lord and then we go preach. Right? That's a very good practical lesson, a good way to apply this. But there was a much more literal interpretation, if I can say it that way, that, uh, that Jesus had in mind. Now, I like the part about preaching upon the housetops. I think we might have to start employing that. How's that for open-air preaching, by the way? <laughs> they have to open-air preach. We might have to as well. That might be the way we congregate now. We, you know, I'll get on top of my roof and you guys can take a walk between 6 and 9 and walk past my house and listen to me preach. <laughs> Verse 28, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now this is a verse we often use for lost people. We give it to them. 
And we said, listen, you know, don't worry about just your body dying. Worry about where your soul is going to go. Fear God. Fair enough. That's, that's true. But this verse is given to the disciples. People are trying to kill you. Don't worry about that. All they can do is destroy your body. They cannot destroy your soul. Fear Him that can destroy both body and soul in hell. The disciple is commanded to fear God because he knows God will destroy that wicked sinner, body and soul. And we are concerned for that man's ultimate uh, outcome. We're concerned about that. If we start fearing man, then we are going to become people pleasers and flatter them so that they're nice to us and don't kill us. And then that man ends up body and soul in hell. Right? So we have to keep that proper perspective. Now, with that being said, if we just stop there, you might get the idea that the disciples of Jesus are disposable. Right? You would look at that and think, wow, Jesus is sending us out as sheep among wolves and He knows we're going to die and our families are going to give up on us and deliver us up. And man, does He even care? Knowing that that might be a concern, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, a, a unit of money back in the day, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. So two sparrows and a farthing, that's not much. But he says, the father is aware even of that small transaction. The death of one of those birds, the father is aware of that. Verse 30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Now, not to compare a disciple to a bird, to say, listen, sparrow, that's all you're worth. He's saying, guys, that's not it. You're, you're so much more valuable than that. For those of you that struggle with self-esteem, those of you that beat yourself up and think, I'm useless, Jesus says to those that follow Him, ye are of more value God is intimately concerned with what goes on in your life. If a bird hits the ground, he knows about that. He has every hair on your head numbered. He knows every little part of your life. He is concerned. Verse 32, forgive me. I, I, I'd like to finish the chapter if you give me just a couple minutes. And I, I'm concerned that maybe I see these questions sometimes pop up after I've ended the, the, the live stream. I'm going to restart it because I think the chat section has failed. So you guys stick with me. I'm only going to take just a few more minutes. We're going to finish this lesson, but be patient. Just 30 seconds here. All right. Good deal. We're back on. Uh, verse number 32. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Now, this verses, these two verses are loaded, right? Okay, good. These two verses are, are, are loaded. If you wanted to use them now, and, and apply them in, in the church age. You go to Romans 10.9 where it says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So if you confess Christ now before men, then one day you get to heaven, Jesus says, Father, this one confess me, he can enter in. 
But if you deny him, you reject Christ, then Jesus will say, this one denied me, depart ye into everlasting fire. And it's a, you can make a very simple application to salvation in that way. And that's true, all right? That's true. But I don't think that's how Jesus directly intended these verses. Remember, he's talking to his disciples, but he does say whosoever. So we can certainly, there, there's room in here for more than just that immediate crowd of 12 apostles. But let's say there's an apostle that confesses him, but then later denies him, because he says they have to endure to the end. Then we have to leave room for the idea that God could have said to them, hey, you denied the faith, so I'm sorry, you're denied entrance into the kingdom. But further, there's a, even another way to understand this, I believe. We looked at it Sunday night. In 2 uh, Timothy chapter 2, when it comes to the resurrection, if we suffer with Him, we shall reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. 2 Timothy 2.12. That would also work here. right? If we confess Him faithfully before men, and we don't buckle under persecution, we receive the reward of the inheritance, and we get to rule next to Christ in the kingdom. If we deny Him, then we would not be allowed to reign in the kingdom, although allowed access. So I, I think these verses, the way that they're worded, verses 32 and 33, it all depends on which context you would like to apply it in. If you want to apply it to present-day salvation, works one way. If you want to apply it to present day to a believer and the rewards that he might get, then it applies to the inheritance and the millennium. And if you want to apply it historically to the crowd that was listening, because they weren't in the body of Christ and they had to hang on to their faith, then it could certainly mean that if they deny, deny Christ and give up under persecution, that they could be denied en entrance in, into the kingdom. So. Verse 34, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Very strange verse. A lot of Muslims use this verse. I've had them use it on me in, in, um, in debates. They, they like to debate whether or not the Quran is a violent book and Islam is violent. And the way that they go about that is to say, but Christianity is violent and the Bible is violent which is a misdirection, right? That's a red herring. They're throwing out a, a curveball. Yes, Jesus said He didn't come to bring peace. Jesus is a realist. Does He want people to live in peace? Yes. Does He want them to have peace in their heart? Absolutely. But Jesus knows that what He's preaching and what His disciples are going to preach will ultimately divide people. Not that God wants that to happen, but He knows that it will. So, he says, I, am, I came not to send peace but a sword. He knows that this sword of division, it has to happen. He can't get around it. When you preach, some people will receive it, some won't. Even in one, in one house, one family, you'll have two people that receive it, three that don't, and a division is created. Well, that's where divisions come from, when people do not unify around the truth. So he explains, verse 35, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, now, is this the will of God that families fight? Obviously, we don't take it like that. 
But Jesus knows that his ministry is going to have this outcome, and he can't get around it. There's no way that he can preach the truth and not have this happen to some extent. Verse 36, And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Which is very sad, but very true. And many of you have probably felt this to some degree with some of your family members. Verse 37, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's a difficult statement, isn't it? That is a difficult statement. So when your mom or dad says, if you keep going with that religious craze, that, that nonsense, then you're dead to us. You have a big choice to make. Your son or your daughter, it's a painful choice to make. It's a really a test of your faith. Because that person, that loved one, you know them, you've seen them. I hope God is real to you. I hope you know Him. I hope that relationship is strong so that it can endure this. Verse 38, And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. In other words, if you're going to be a disciple, there is sacrifice involved. Verse 39, He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Jim Elliot famous missionary to Ecuador. He died at the hands of the bush, the village people there in Ecuador at the age of 29. Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to receive that which he cannot lose. Which is a very clever way of, of saying pretty much what Jesus has already given us in verse 39. So I'll let you dwell on that statement. But if you find everything you want, everything your flesh wants now, well then, essentially, you're losing life. Because that's not what real life is all about. But you deny yourself, and all of a sudden you find what real life is all about. Verse 40, He that receiveth you receiveth me. He that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. So this is like a chain of authority. God the Father sent Jesus. Jesus sent the disciples. So by receiving the disciple, you're receiving Jesus because Jesus authorized it, and you're receiving the Father. The Father authorized it. So it's a package deal. Verse 41, He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. I believe this goes back a little bit to what we read in verse 11, 12, 13, 14. When a prophet or a righteous man, they're busy trying to help someone, they're busy doing something in the ministry, and you have a chance to feed them a meal or give them a place to sleep for the night or for the week or whatever it is, then you are actually partaking in that man's ministry for that short time. You are going to be rewarded accordingly, right? So the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 8, the laborer, he Every, every man has his own function, and every man gets rewarded for the labor that he's performed. So if it was just providing the meal, that preacher couldn't get up and speak if he didn't have a, a bed to sleep in the night before and breakfast that morning. He, he wouldn't physically be able to do it. So that person that helped, he gets the prophet's reward or the righteous man's reward because he partook in the same ministry, fellow laborer. Verse 42, And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, 
Verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. Which is another reason I think back to verse 32 and uh, 33. If we confess him, we get the reward. If you deny him, you might be denied the reward. I, because the context talks about these rewards, it could be that Jesus was referring to that as well. But as I said, we've already covered that. In verse 42, if one of these little ones is thirsty. So this would be the equivalent of saying, you know, uh, you see, let's say Brother Francois, uh, his little boy, Ben, uh, Ben's thirsty. And you say, whose little boy is this? Oh, this is Francois' boy. Oh, Francois' boy. I know Francois. Boy, he's a blessing. Yeah, man, he's a faithful guy in the church. Come here, Ben. Let me help you out. And you, just by hearing who this child is connected to, you offer that cup of cold water. Now, obviously, guys, if any child is thirsty, please help them. But when you go out of your way to take care of this little kid and you know that there's a connection, so you're going to take extra special care of it. Even though it's just a little kid and a cup of water, the point that Jesus is getting across, the connection is still there. Little kid, cup of water, connected to a disciple who was connected to some guy who preached to him, who was connected to Jesus, who was connected to God the Father. And God is aware of what you're doing. Nothing gets unnoticed and it will be rewarded. Okay, I'm so sorry. I took a few extra minutes. Guys, I hope that's okay. There's a lot in Matthew, amen, so I appreciate your patience. Uh, forgive me for having to restart the, uh, the stream a couple times. I, I, I'm glad I did it so that I can see all the messages that came through. But if you have any questions, please feel free to send me a, a personal message, email, or a WhatsApp, and I'll do my best to help you out. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you this evening for the privilege of opening the Word and helping us tonight. Lord, I believe there's plenty that we've studied, talked about that can be applied immediately. Help us, Lord, to have a, such a strong relationship with you. Oh God, I hope we never have to choose between a family member and you. Work in the hearts of our family members and loved ones so that we can all be in love with you. But Lord, if we ever have to make that decision, help us to be close enough to you so that it's that we don't even have to struggle with it. We know what we need to choose. Lord, please bring us back tomorrow ready to learn more. Thank you for your grace tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.